All right, well, welcome, guys. Week four, we're going through covenant theology. So um, last week, we finished up with the garden. We talked about um, just the significance of the covenant that God made with Adam and how because Adam failed in the terms of the covenant, he failed to fulfill his obligations. Because of that, the curse came on man, on all creation. It was a comprehensive um serious, absolutely um, you know, uh, devastating curse, total death, spiritual death, separation from God, physical death. And also we talked about the really the whole essence of it and kind of the, the big sign of what the judgment was, was that uh, <coughs> loss of access to the tree of life, that man was cut off from fellowship with God that was signified in that cast out of the garden and being cut off from the tree of life. But then we talked about in Genesis 3.15 when God pronounces the curse on the serpent. Um, that's the first glimpse of the mystery of Christ and God revealing what he's going to do to restore fellowship with man and bring his kingdom to consummation. So um, now the rest of scripture is that plan of God being unfolded in stages and in pieces. And so tonight we're going to start talking about Noah uh, the plan is for this week and next, we'll deal with Noah and the flood. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the access that you've given us to your word. Lord, we thank you that in the scriptures are indeed the words of eternal life. And Lord, that uh, we are just so blessed and privileged to have them, Lord God. And, and I pray that it never gets old to us that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to your sinful, fallen, damaged, and cursed creatures, Lord God. And you didn't just stop at revealing yourself, but you've actually done everything necessary to secure our salvation, Lord, to mold us into the image of Christ and to restore fellowship with us. So, Lord, I do pray that in that gratitude, we would be filled with joy and worship and praise. And, Lord, I pray that that will just come out in our lives, in our life that we live together, that it would come out um, in our personal lives, in our family lives, and that nights like tonight where we have the opportunity to be in your word and to really seek to dive into it more deeply, I just pray that that would only be increasing our love for you and our gratitude for what you've done. And it's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so we're going to be looking, I know that on your outline it says we're you know reading like three chapters. We're not reading three full chapters straight, but we're going to be looking at bits of this whole narrative of the flood, the ark, Noah, and all of that. But again, I want to remind you guys, last week we talked about how Adam brought the whole world, the whole creation under a curse. Um, and so all mankind, because of Adam's sin, his failure to fulfill the terms of the covenant, because of that, mankind is under judgment. We are under the judgment of God by nature. And yet, in the midst of that judgment, God promised that he was going to bring into the world an offspring of Eve who was going to do what Adam failed to do, who was going to actually crush the serpent, um, cast the serpent out, and uh, bring the, the kingdom of God to its final consummated glorious state. And so that's the promise of what God is going to do. That's the first glimpse of the mystery of Christ. But also God did say, remember we read last week, in the midst of that promise that he was going to put enmity uh, within the human race, between the seed of the woman, which is the satanic seed, I'm sorry, the seed of the woman is the godly seed, <laughs> and the seed of the woman is the, or the serpent is the uh, satanic seed, that God was going to establish enmity between these two distinctions in the human race. And so from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, you have the godly seed who hoped in the promise, who believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. He was going to bring the kingdom to consummation. He was going to crush the serpent. Um, and then you have the satanic seed, which is constantly seeking to establish man as God, trying to usurp God's authority and place man in the seat of God. And so what we have 
then in this uh, enmity between the two uh, the two seeds, that ends up erupting into conflict, right? You have the one seed trying to follow God, trusting his promising and his promises and honoring him as God, and then the other seed trying to uh, usurp that, trying to usurp God's authority, put man in the seat of God. And so that's going to lead naturally to conflict because you have two different kinds of humanity, two different races of humanity who are seeking opposite goals. And so if you look at Genesis 6, where we're going to begin tonight, we're going to see a picture of the earth and of the human race that has fallen so far that has becoming has become so ungodly, so profane, so unholy, so violent and wicked that it actually puts the existence of the righteous seed of the woman into danger, that there's actually a threat to the very existence of the seed of the woman. And that means a threat to uh, God's whole redemptive program, right? If the seed of the woman dies out, then there goes the promise of God, right? Then what happened to, I'm going to bring your seed into the world and crush the serpent. So if we look at Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7, there's that description of... Uh, just how far the world had fallen from its original state. And so we read that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his, uh, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So right there, initially, you have this picture of the world in chaos. And I don't necessarily want to get into tonight the sons of God and the daughters of man. There's a couple different schools of thought about that. Some people think that that's referring to angels who actually had relations with human women and had these sort of half-angel, superhuman children. And there are some solid people who believe that, but then uh, most Reformed people uh, would say that this is the two seeds of humanity uh, intermarrying and mixing. So constantly the problem throughout Scripture is God's people who are set apart are constantly tempted to mix with the world, and then uh, you know the purity of true religion gets corrupted, and you know things sort of spiral out of control. And so that's what most Reformed people believe that you know this is the wicked men, the godly seed, uh, the godly women come together having children. Essentially, though, it comes down to just uh, the world in absolute chaos. It was you know. People talk about the days of Noah and, oh, we're living in the days of Noah. This is worse than, you know, what we experience in the world. This is uh, describing just an absolutely chaotic world, unruly, and kind of almost uh, the idea of the curse just having free reign, very little of God's restraining grace going on. Again, so much so that the actual existence of God's people was threatened on the earth. And so this sets the stage for God to intervene in what's going on with redemptive judgment. And this is going to be a very important concept. If you guys remember, the, one of the big purposes of this class is to help us to understand the whole of Scripture and how it all fits together and flows together, but also for us to understand uh, just the, the absolute grace of God in the way that he communicates to us, that he has revealed himself to his people through symbols and pictures and events and, and uh, you know different historical events. And God is revealing himself in that way, showing us what he's doing, because if he just came out and told us plainly, it wouldn't make, it would, it's just too 
incredible for us to comprehend what God is doing. And so he has to work in this kind of way. He graciously works in this way to reveal himself to us. And one of the big ways, the big themes that we see throughout scripture is this theme of redemptive judgment. And this event with Noah really is going to um, set a pattern for how God is going to work in providing those symbols, those types that we talked about in the first week, um, and to further unveil the mystery of Christ and the way that salvation is going to be accomplished. And so we see a lot of that in the flood. So in the narrative that we're going to be talking about tonight, in the flood, we see God destroying his enemies, we see God redeeming his people, and then at the end we're going to see God establish a new covenant order in the fallen creation. That's kind of the uh, the story arc of the flood. Judgment, redemption, and new creation. And that's not only the you know the the story arc for the flood narrative, but really all of scripture and the way that God reveals himself and ultimately what he's doing in Christ, it follows this pattern of judgment, redemption, recreation. Um, really from the from this point onward, we're gonna see this pattern repeated again and again. And this was the hope. Again, think about Christ as a mystery. This is what the Old Testament saints had to look at, right? The people living in Noah's time and immediately afterward and in the time of Moses, they had these events to look at and to discern from that, this is what God is doing. This is how God fulfills his promises. And so this really sets the pattern. And understanding this helps us to understand the Exodus. It helps us to understand Joshua and the judges and the kings of Israel. And ultimately, it helps us to understand the work of Christ because you see, okay, God is following this pattern. So even just take as a quick example, Exodus, because you know we all know the story of Exodus so well, it follows this same pattern. God delivers uh, his people, or God judges the people of Egypt with the 10 plagues and then uh, with the Red Sea, he you know, judges the enemy. In doing that, he delivers his people out of bondage into Egypt, and he brings them to the holy mountain where they worship God and where they receive this new covenant order from Moses, the Ten Commandments. You know, so you have this judgment, redemption, new creation. Same thing even with Christ. That's what we look forward to. Christ uh, pronounces judgment on his enemies. Uh, he redeems his people in that judgment. So he pronounces us righteous, declares us not guilty, redeems us from our sin, judges his enemies, and then brings about his consummated kingdom, the new creation. So important for us to get what's going on here with Noah and with the ark um, if we're going to really properly understand and appreciate God's whole, the whole of God's purposes. Everything good so far? You guys have any questions or anything yet? Perfect. Um, so we'll start with the judgment aspect. And so for that, we're going to read Genesis 7, verses 11 and 12, and then verses 17 through 24. So chapter 7, beginning verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And then go down to verse 17. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. 
only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That's a lot. And, you know, this is one of the things where the kind of Sunday school version of Noah's Ark is just so absolutely, you know, misrepresentation. You know, kind of have this cute, oh, Noah went into the Ark with the animals. This is, yeah, this is uh, devastating global judgment pronounced on the whole earth. And, you know, even think about just, you know, today, if you guys saw kind of what has been going on in Florida with the hurricane that's hitting there and just the horrible storm, the devastation, the loss of life that's going to be happening down there for a storm that hangs over there for a few hours. And think about the, you know, 40 days, global storm, rain pouring, the floodwaters from the oceans coming up, relentless judgment. And... It's really interesting because we see other instances of judgment throughout Scripture, right? We talked about the Exodus. You know, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah being burned with fire from heaven. Uh, you know, the, the land of Canaan, the judgment of the conquest when Joshua went in and drove out the, the Canaanites. You know, the, uh, the exiles of Babylon and Assyria when Israel was brought into exile. All of that. But when we're talking about the final judgment... Um, when that's being warned about, and specifically I'm thinking of Second Peter, and if you guys want to turn over to Second Peter chapter 3, all the way at the other end of the Bible, um, because when Peter is describing and warning of the final judgment, he doesn't look to any of the other examples in Scripture, but he goes to the flood of Noah, that this was the greatest picture of what the final judgment is going to be like, this global devastation. And so if we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 13, Peter writes this, that uh, they, the wicked, deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction on the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Part of the reason why I read that whole thing is because I want you guys to see what we just talked about, that pattern of redemption or of judgment, redemption and recreation. You see that here, even in Second Peter, when he's talking about the final judgment. He talks about the fire, the destruction of the wicked on the day of judgment. And then he says that. Uh, those who repent will not perish. So there you have redemption. And then at the end there, he says, we're waiting for a new creation in which righteousness dwells. So even you see that thread from Genesis 6 and the flood here to 2 Peter, that same pattern, judgment, redemption, new creation. And also another interesting thing, just to kind of tie it back to last week. You remember last week after Adam and Eve sinned, Uh, They were exposed before God. They realized they were naked. They were ashamed of that. And so they brought the fig leaves. And we talked about how that's almost a, that is a kind of a picture of man's futility to cover up his sin. And from the fall onward, man has been looking to the natural world, to some sort of idol, some sort of savior from within creation to, to provide a covering before God. And here in 2 Peter 3, in verse uh verse 10 he said that the works done the earth will be exposed and so on that last day of judgment you go back to that very beginning with the garden when adam and eve were exposed before god that all the things that man tries to cover himself up with are going to be 
cast aside on the day of judgment and he'll be fully exposed. So just a couple of things to tie in there, because that's all part of the theme of this class, tying in all these different themes throughout scripture. And to be fully exposed means like what? Right, that there's no that all of our sin and uncleanness because that was it with Adam and Eve. It's not that they you know they were naked and not ashamed before they sin, and then afterward they were ashamed. The shame wasn't from their nakedness per se; it was from their sin. And so that's what we're talking about. Yes, when we talk about being exposed before God, it is all of our sin uh, being laid bare before Him, nothing to cover us. That's why. As Christians, we know we need the righteousness of Christ to cover us. We need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Otherwise, nothing is gonna, nothing will do the trick. Nothing so our thoughts, our motives, everything that we try to hide in front of people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, man, not being honest. Yes. Yep. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. That's a yeah. Good clarification. Um, and so the the bigger point I'm trying, I want to make here though, is that. Just you know, getting back to the flood narrative, that Peter uses the flood as this example of what the final judgment will be like, um, and he also gets at the purpose of the judgment. It's not God just sort of lashing out, or you know, God just um, sort of you know exercising his anger and you know throwing a fit. Uh, but the purpose of judgment is the destruction of the ungodly. Explicitly, that's the reason for it. Um, it is always the vindication of God and his righteousness over the rebellion of sinners and their wickedness. That's always the reason for judgment. And... We see in this, you know, just look at the language in uh, Genesis 7 that we looked at. It is a judgment that is very comprehensive and without mercy. You know, verse 21, all flesh died, all mankind, everything uh, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, blotted out every living thing, all blotted out from the earth. All of that is a comprehensive, absolutely devastating global judgment on God's enemies. It's cataclysmic. It's a perfect uh, purge of wickedness from the earth. That's what judgment is. Like I said, it's not God just acting out in his wrath or being emotional, but this is God executing justice on the wicked, perfectly vindicating his righteousness. And um, it's important for us to understand, like I mentioned, with all the other judgments that have come in between, from the time of the flood until uh, you know our own day, God is still you know, judging the world, not in the final sense, but he is judging the world right now. All of that, there has never been another judgment like the flood since then, and there won't be another anything like it until the final day of judgment. And so what you have here is not, uh, you know, what we see in Sunday school, the cute little animals going on. This is a purge of wickedness, devastating judgment on the earth. Uh, but again, the reason for it, God vindicating his righteousness, and also judgment is intrinsically tied to God rescuing and redeeming his people. And so that's the next thing we'll look at. So you have judgment, but then you have redemption in the midst of judgment. So I want us to look at... Uh, Chapter 6, verses 8 through 22. So back in Genesis 6, 8, we read, But God found favor, I'm sorry, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into I'm sorry, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so again, what we'll see throughout scripture, throughout the, you know, as a pattern, the way that God works is that judgment and redemption always go together. And when God judges, he's also redeeming and delivering his people. They always coincide. And what you always see, and we see it here uh, in Genesis with the flood, is that there's distinction made between uh, the wicked and the righteous, between God's people and the people of Satan, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, you know, we always see that distinction. And so in this case, you have Noah. And, you know, it says there that he's righteous. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, And he receives a special revelation from God, similar to the way we saw Adam receive a special revelation from God with very specific instructions. So God warns Noah of the devastating judgment that he's about to bring upon the earth, the just judgment that he's bringing. And to his people specifically. So God specifically revealing himself to his people provides a way of escape from the judgment. He passes over them. He gives them that means of salvation, right? That's always um, the, the, the way that God works. He gives the judgment a redemptive character, right, by giving his people a way of passing through the judgment. Like I said... We see this um, constantly in you know throughout Scripture, and we'll talk about a couple more examples in just a minute. Um, <clears throat> but part of the reason why judgment and redemption always go together and necessarily go together is because the judgment works as a way of bringing God's people to safety, right? The wicked pose a threat to the godly. We saw that at the beginning here, the reason why God had to do this. The wicked pose an immediate threat. God, in judging the wicked, brings his people to safety. That's kind of the simple formula that we see. He removes the threat that the ungodly pose. Um, He conquers the enemy that's set on destroying God's people, right? Just like Adam failed to conquer the serpent, and so the serpent had access to Eve and was able to, uh, you know, tempt man into sin and bring about this curse. God, when he pronounces judgment, he's conquering that enemy and protecting his people. And so that's why you always see judgment and redemption going hand in hand. And the means that God used to save his people in this instance is the ark. And again, I don't want to get too deeply into this, but it is interesting and worth pointing out. And, you know, uh, several theologians have pointed this out, but the ark really serves, and remember we talked about types in the very beginning, so we know what that word means, a picture, right? Something that's pointing forward to something else. The ark serves as a type of temple kingdom of God, kind of in the way that the Garden of Eden did. So remember we talked about how the garden was the special presence of God, and it was this special dominion, it was a temple, it was a kingdom, and man was to bring the, you know, expand the borders of the kingdom to make all of creation a temple of God. That was the program there. And of course, Adam failed, and so the earth 
does not fulfill its purpose of being a temple of God, but rather becomes a cursed creation. Um, but what we see with the ark, if God's promise in the garden, if God's promise in Genesis 3 was to fulfill the work that Adam failed in, so God is going to make all of creation a temple for himself. God is going to make all of creation a holy place. Uh, the ark is a is one of the first pictures we have of that sort of idea of the earth being a holy place. Um, one of the ways that we see this is that in every other place throughout scripture where God gives very specific building instructions, it's for his dwelling places. It's for the tabernacle, the temple. You even see it with Ezekiel and in Revelation, there's these very exact measurements. When God's giving those specific instructions, it's for his own holy dwelling places. So that's one of the indications that this ark, it's not just a vessel. It's not just a boat to try to you know, keep, help man survive. There is something holy about the ark. It's set apart. It's not just uh, this boat for man to be safe from the floodwaters. Another thing that uh, kind of indicates this, that some theologians have pointed out, is that the instructions for the ark are a little bit more like a house than a boat. Uh, specifically when he talks about the three levels, he says that you know, you're know you to have this upper story, the middle story, and a lower story. That's more of a kind of house-type structure than that of a boat. And so that gives you the indication, again, it's not just for sailing and for survival, but this is a house of God where God is served and where God is going to protect and provide for and care for his people. And you know, even some theologians have pointed out too, if we think about all of creation ultimately is going to be a temple to the Lord, one of the ways that creation is often referred to in scripture, kind of the formula of the heavens above, the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. That's kind of the comprehensive all of creation. That's the cosmos. And there may be a correspondence there to those three decks of the ark, above the earth, waters below. Just those sorts of things that just indicate to us, again, Christ is revealed as a mystery. It's not all explicit, but these are little hints that indicate this isn't just a boat. This is something more is going on here. Um, and so you see this regardless of whether the three levels correspond to the levels of creation. It is a special dwelling place of God. God gives the specific instructions. It's meant for man to be protected by God. It's the vehicle by which God delivers his people. It's a special dwelling place where he's going to uh, protect his people from judgment while the whole world under judgment um, is suffering the floodwaters. And it also provides a sign to Noah and to his family in there that this isn't the end, right? Because when judgment is happening, oftentimes the temptation is this is the end. This is, you know, this is it. Everything's over. God is preserving his people, keeping them and giving them hope that a new consummated creation waits for them at the end of this judgment. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And another one of the you know very vivid pictures that we have here that we also are going to see later on is this idea of passing through judgment. Uh, I think we talked about that a little bit in the last couple weeks, but this is a pattern repeated again and again where God protects his people very specifically from the judgment and actually brings them through it. He provides that covering for their sins. Um, Again, you think of the Red Sea at Exodus, a very clear picture of this, where the people of Israel, God parts the Red Sea, allows his people to pass over on dry land. What happens when the Egyptians go through? They are consumed by the waters of judgment. The waters cover them over and wipe them out. Um, back to Peter, if you guys want to turn over to First Peter, he makes this very explicit, applying this imagery, this, uh, this scheme, you could say, that we have um, with the ark and with Noah, with the flood, he applies it very specifically to the work that Christ did and the uh, what we have in Christ, the way that we pass through the judgment if we're in Christ. So 1 Peter 3, 
beginning in verse 20, it says that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter borrows specifically from the flood narrative when he's talking about how we pass through the judgment if we're in Christ. And so just like uh, with God's people passing through the judgment with the ark, Christ himself, he passed through the judgment of death, right? Christ suffered the curse of death. He passed through that in the resurrection. And now if we are united to Christ, we also pass through the curse of death we don't receive the second death, right? Remember, that's how it's characterized in Revelation. So, again, you see this pattern continuing to be repeated. God delivers his people by giving them a way to pass through the judgment. It doesn't exempt us from uh, some of the pains of the judgment, but we do pass through it if we're in Christ. Noah passed through it uh, by virtue of the ark. And the other thing that's really important for us with this narrative and something I want to spend a little bit of time on is the way of salvation. So the means was by the ark, but the actual way of attaining salvation for Noah and his family was by covenant. And I want to think about that a little bit. This is covenant theology after all. And this particular covenant is one that oftentimes we miss. When we're talking about the big covenants of Scripture, we miss this one. And that's actually, there are actually two distinct covenants in this narrative with Noah. And usually when we talk about the covenant with Noah, we're talking about the one after the flood with the rainbow. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But God makes a different covenant with Noah, a very narrow, specific, and salvific covenant with Noah in chapter 6 that's distinct from the one that he makes with him that applies to all creation and is very broad and general and provisional. Again, that's next week. Tonight I want to look at the covenant he makes in Genesis 6 because this one very specifically is a, a, a key piece in the mystery of Christ because it reveals to God's people the kind of covenant that they're to look for from God if they're to pass through the final judgment, if they're to be delivered from the curse that Adam brought, they need to look for this kind of covenant. This really foreshadows the work that Christ is going to do. Um, and so one of the first things to think about, and so we get we get the language from this down in verse 18, by the way. God says, I will establish my covenant with you you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. So there's the, you know, God uses the covenant language explicitly. We didn't see that in, in the garden. The covenant, the word wasn't explicitly used. Here God explicitly uses that word. And one of the first things for us to notice, again, we're thinking of this in terms of revealing the mystery of Christ. How God is revealing to his people the kind of savior they're to look for and the kind of covenant they're to anticipate. We first look at the character of Noah. And so it says in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who walked with God. Now, when it says righteous there, it's not talking about sinless. We know even later, we see a specific instance of Noah sinning after the flood. We know that Noah was not without sin. Noah needed a savior just like the rest of us. Noah needed to trust in the promises of God. He needed to be redeemed. He needed to be covered by Christ. All of that. However, we can't just neglect what the Bible tells us about Noah because it tells us that he was righteous and blameless. Similar language is used for Job, right? Job, God says of Job, he's righteous and blameless. Again, it doesn't mean he's perfect or without sin, but it is true that Noah attained a type of righteousness. Noah attained a certain level of righteousness that points forward to the perfect righteousness that Christ would attain. 
And so Noah was, um, a, he was a standout man who served God. Now, again, we can go all the way back and say, well, the reason why Noah served God is because God worked in his heart and he had faith in God and he trusted him. And yes, all that is true. Noah was saved by grace through faith. Absolutely true, just like everyone else. But he did attain a level of righteousness that was unique and that pointed forward to the perfect righteousness that Christ would attain. So it doesn't make sense for us to just sort of read past he was righteous and blameless. That just meant that he was, you know, a believer in God. He had a very specific, unique kind of righteousness meant to point forward to the perfect righteousness that we would finally see fulfilled in Christ. Um, so that's the first thing. And keep in mind as well, like I said in the very first week, we have to take each covenant on its own terms and not make it say or do more than it actually does. This covenant that God makes with Noah here, it's not a salvific covenant from sin. This isn't a covenant that's going to redeem Noah or anyone from sin. It is going to save them from this particular judgment. This covenant does not save them from the final judgment. Does that make sense to everyone? Good. So that's the first thing. Noah does attain a level of righteousness, a type of righteousness that's distinguished, it's unique, and it's also immediately contrasted with the earth. So in verse 9, it says Noah was righteous, blameless, and then down in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt. So you have this very stark contrast of Noah and the earth. You have one who is righteous, one that's wicked, one that's set apart uh, for salvation and redemption, one that is set for just judgment. You also have Noah as the federal head over his immediate family. Again, in verse 18, it says you, your sons, your wife, your son's wife. So Noah is representative, just like we talked last week, how Adam was representative of all of his offspring in the covenant. Noah was a representative only of his wife, his sons, and their wives. That was the extent of who was included in this covenant. God makes it very clear. Noah is the federal head. God dealt directly with Noah. He spoke to him. He instructed him. And it was Noah's participation in the covenant that guaranteed the blessings of the covenant to the ones he represented. So Noah participating, Noah obeying God, that's what would guarantee the blessings for the rest of Noah's family. Um, they would share in the blessings of his finished work, right? That's, that's the picture that's forming. We also have in verse 22, it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So Noah was obedient to the covenant. He obeyed the terms of the covenant. God commanded him. He said, you're going to build this ark. You're going to build it in this specific way. And Noah obeyed the terms of the covenant. God's promise of the covenant, uh, was for Noah and his family to be spared of the judgment. They would be safe from the judgment that was coming around the earth. When he says in verse uh, in verse 17, when he says that everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, you have Noah and his family are exempted from that everything. God makes that exception. Everything's going to be judged, but... I'm going to establish my covenant with you and you are going to pass through the judgment. And so you have uh, both a works and a grace principle, right? God is gracious to spare Noah and his family from the judgment. However, their salvation from this particular flood judgment depends on Noah's work building the ark, right? Noah had to build the ark to be spared from the judgment. He had to build the ark for them to be safe. And so... Ultimately, the salvation of Noah's family depends on Noah doing this work that God has called him to do. Everything making sense so far? And so this covenant arrangement specifically, where God is dealing with a righteous, meritorious federal head, where he is instructing him to do this work, and if you do this work, you, I'm going to give salvation to all those whom you represent. You're going to pass through this judgment. This is the kind of covenant that God is going to enter into to ultimately deliver all of his people from the curse of the covenant of life that we talked about last week, the covenant with Adam. This is the kind of covenant 
that they're called to look for. Again, Noah is the righteous head. He's the Christ figure in this. So would you say that Noah is a type of Christ? Absolutely. Noah is a type of Christ. Yes, that's the you can see that plain there, answer. But... Exactly. That Noah is the type of Christ. He is the one who God's dealing with. He is righteous in terms of this covenant, what God is telling him. God is giving him a work to do. And God says, if you do this work, then the people who you represent are going to pass through this judgment, be redeemed, enter into the new creation. That's the kind of covenant that we have with Christ. Jesus is righteous, perfectly righteous. He represents his people perfectly. He accomplishes all righteousness on the earth, fulfills the law, obeys God perfectly, dies on the cross, passes through the judgment, and everyone who is attached to Christ, who's united with him, is going to follow him in passing through the judgment based on his finished work. And so that is, uh, that's a major significance of this whole ordeal with Noah that we can't miss, that God is revealing a huge little piece of the mystery of Christ and that, okay, this is how I'm going to bring about this promise that I've made, this kind of covenant. It's going to be this sort of salvation. Again, I say this, God is so gracious to deal with us with these sorts of pictures and symbols, historical events, that God is showing us through historical events, this is how I'm going to save my people. He's teaching us uh, in these ways that we can get our minds around and understand. It's very, you know, really amazing what God is doing and how he wisely works through history to kind of show us this grand picture of redemption in a microcosm. And again... What's up? Go ahead. So, so this is why Jesus would say, if you knew Moses, if you understood Moses, you would know me. You would love me. He wrote of me. I mean, that's throughout the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. But this would be a picture of that. Exactly. If you understood what Moses was writing, you would know me. Exactly. You know, even just the you know little things. Noah's family, their salvation depended on the work that Noah would do. Noah had to bring them into the ark, right? He is the one who God dealt with. Um, you know, they received that salvation based on Noah's obedience, just like we receive salvation based on Christ's obedience. So you see the parallels, you see the way that it lines up. Again, it doesn't reveal the details of Christ because it's a mystery and it's not revealed until Christ comes. All of this is it's pictures, it's shadows, it's types, it's, it's not fully in sharp focus, but you're starting to see, okay, this is the scheme. This is what God is doing. This is his plan and purpose. And we're going to see it again and again throughout scripture. Any more questions on that or, or comments? Did we say that um, uh, Adam was a type for Christ? He was, yes. Because remember, Adam was a priest and a prophet and a king, and he was supposed to you know, cast out the enemy, protect God's holiness, all those things, Adam failed as a type of Christ. That's the other thing. Sometimes a type of Christ is something that fails in doing what it's supposed to do, like Adam. Other times, it's someone like Noah who succeeded in the work set before him. So with Adam, he's a type of Christ, but he falls so far short, he fails, and he leaves so much to be desired. Noah, he fulfills what God uh, commanded him, and so that's more of a positive example of, okay, this is what the Savior is going to do. Good question. So we have the redemption, or the judgment, the redemption, um, and now the new creation. So flip over to uh, chapter 8. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 21. And so we read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him from the ark. 
for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We'll stop there. So, like I said, when you're in the midst of the judgment, it can seem like this is the end, this is it, you know, what can be left after this? But of course, the judgment is not the end. The judgment, it, uh, it cleanses all of creation. It makes creation suitable for the safety and for the rest of God's people. And so, the floodwaters subside, the enemy is defeated, all the wickedness, all the wicked men were purged from the earth. The enemy is defeated, the threat is gone, and man is now free to worship and serve God in this new creation. He's free to do what he was made to do. And again, this is what Adam failed to do. Adam failed to defeat the enemy. He failed to cast out the serpent. Uh, And this is what God promised that he would do in Genesis 3.15, that he would crush the serpent, that he would make the creation new and would make it safe for man to serve him to worship him and to perfectly obey him. And so if you have this this post-flood experience of Noah and his family, and it is a type that points forward to the consummated creation when God will crush the serpent, finally, fully and completely defeat the enemy and establish the new heavens and the new earth where his people are completely free and safe to serve and worship him. And part of the ways that we, that the things that indicate that this is meant to be a sort of uh, a type of new creation, one of the things we see that's really interesting are certain parallels between this narrative and the creation narrative that kind of tell us that God is doing something like what he did at creation. Uh, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's something like it. So, you know, just briefly, you know, we don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but you remember Genesis 1 verse 2, before God began to form the world, we're told that the earth was without form and void. You had the spirit hovering and said the waters covered the earth. And so before God speaks into the creation, actually gives it its form and its shape, you have the earth kind of in this sort of chaotic formless, uh, strange state where it's just waters covering the whole earth. You remember Peter writing in 2 Peter that God created the earth through the waters, from the waters God created by his word. And uh, you have that sort of repeated when all of the earth from the mountaintops, remember, is covered by the waters once again. So, you know, you're kind of reverted back to this chaotic, pre-formation state of creation. That's the first parallel that we see. This begins to change, though, when uh, in in in, uh, chapter 8, when God kind of begins this work of the new creation. Um, So again, some of the other parallels. The second day of creation, 
First day, God created light. Second day, God separated the waters above and the waters beneath. And it said that God, you know, he called the waters above the sky, the heavens, waters beneath, beneath was the sea. God separates them and distinguishes them. What do we have in the flood? It's the waters coming down from above, the heavens being opened. And, you know, I mean, literally as close to the sky falling as you know you could ever imagine that just the waters from the heavens that essentially make up the sky pouring forth onto the earth and then the waters from the deep rising up and the waves overwhelming the earth so you have this state where during the flood it's the you know the waters above and the waters beneath are no longer separated they've come together again and the first thing that we see, the first sign of the new creation is the waters on the earth receding and the waters from the heaven ceasing. And so you have a re-separation. They're going back to their established place uh, under their boundaries. So you have this sort of starting over where God is re-separating the things that were once separated. Uh, the next creative work of God was that he caused the dry land to appear. And so the next thing that we see with the flood is the tops of the mountains begin to appear. So the waters are separated. Now all of a sudden the dry land is beginning to reappear. And so again, that gives us this indication that God is doing something like what he did at creation. Um, the third day of creation, vegetation begins to sprout. What do you have this whole episode with uh, Noah sending forth the dove. She comes back. He sends the dove again, and she comes back with an olive branch. And that indicates that the the vegetation was now beginning to sprout again. The waters had receded enough that now you can have the, the plants, and they're yielding fruit once again. That parallels the creation narrative. And then the last thing, again, it's not a perfect one-for-one -one correspondence, but there's enough there where you see this parallels. It's hinting at... Uh, this work that God is doing. Finally, the last thing, uh, the animals and man emerge from the ark, just like on the sixth day of creation, God created animals, then he created man, and he calls them to be fruitful and multiply. Same thing God says to the animals and to man when they leave the ark, be fruitful and multiply. So you have this sort of picture of a reset, a recreation, that it's not a totally different creation. God didn't create from nothing, but he took the creation that was there, purged it of wickedness, and sort of does this recreative work. And that's similar to what we're going to see in the final judgment. God's not going to create a new heavens and a new earth from nothing. It's going to be this earth and this heavens, but passed through judgment, refined by fire, and made new by, uh, by Jesus Christ. And so again, you have this picture of man now entering into a new and safe creation, and the first thing that man does is he offers God Sabbath worship and rest. He exits the ark, verse 20. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. He builds a place of worship. And he offers every clean animal and every clean bird. And it's important, too. Noah's not offering atoning sacrifices here, but he's offering uh, you know, sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise and worship to God. That's the character of these sacrifices in this new creation. Um, and so, again, if we think about the final state, the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be perfect rest, perfect worship, that consummated kingdom that we keep talking about. That's what waits for us in the new creation. And that's sort of what you have here at the end of the flood. It's a type where man goes forth. He worships, he's free and safe to worship God freely and completely. And even when it says that God um, you know, received the pleasing aroma from Noah's sacrifices, that God was satisfied, that God looks on this uh, new creation where you know, he's done his judicial work of judgment, he's done his redemptive work of saving his people, he's done his recreative work, and he's pleased it reminds us of that seventh day of creation where God looked on all that he had done. He was pleased with it and he rested. And so, again, this whole narrative of Noah is a, you know, a microcosm of what God is going to do on the grand scale to save all of his people from final judgment and bring them into the fully new creation. 
And so this whole episode, again, it's used by God to reveal this pattern that he is going to work through again and again. Judgment, redemption, recreation. Remember that. You'll see it throughout scripture. And again, we'll know this is what we as Christians have our hope in. This is what Christ is doing. That man is to trust uh, in the promises of God. This is what God says that he will do. And so even as rudimentary, kind of as crude of a model as this is of what God is ultimately doing in his grand plan of redemption, this is what the saints at that time had to look at in terms of God's promises, his revelation of what he was doing. Um, And again, just to kind of summarize the picture that we have, God destroys his enemies, causes his people to pass through the judgment through a faithful, righteous covenant head, and that he's going to bring them through that faithful covenant head into a new consummated creation. And so again, it's through this that the work of Christ makes a little bit more sense. And even this, you know, pictured in a you know very, like I said, crude, basic form is pictured here, uh, you know, as a mystery for his people to anticipate. And, uh, Next week, we're going to talk about then the covenant that God makes to stabilize this creation until that day when Christ comes. How God is going to manage to, you know, keep the creation stable, keep his people safe in the world, relatively safe in the world, as he works out his redemptive purposes. Do you guys have any uh, any questions? I just think, um, like, even... In Habakkuk chapter 2, it's kind of like a microcosm of everything that Luke was saying tonight that, that the Lord is going to do. And it's kind of a, maybe a little bit of play, a play on the flood itself because like 2.13 says, and this is judgment on the nation, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? And he goes on to describe judgment. But then in 2.14, and here's where the tie-in is like for tonight, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole idea of almost using that, that language of flood. To, but now it's going to be the knowledge of the Lord. So it has that judgment, redemption, and kind of new mm-hmm. creation within that. So it's it's throughout scripture. Just like Luke was saying tonight, remember that, you guys, when you're reading scripture, use this as a handle. Even if you're, especially if you're reading through the Old Testament, this idea of judgment, redemption, and new creation when you're reading through judges, mm-hmm. when you're reading through the kingdoms, you know, when they, Israel would go to the high places, they would be judged, and then the Lord would restore. When they went into captivity, the Lord brought them back, and that's kind of that new, there was, there was judgment, redemption of his people, and then restoration. Mm-hmm. It'll really help you understand kind of the, the theme of scripture and mm-hmm. that constant reminder. So that's really, really good. Too. And, that, and the great work that God is ultimately doing, that it's not just, you know, we are, uh, you know, we're, kind of protected in Christ, we are, but that God is bringing about this whole new creation, this consummated kingdom. That's the end goal of all of this. And you see the grand work that God is doing, not on just the immediate individual level, but on the grand scope of all of history, what God is working towards. And like you said, throughout the Old Testament, throughout, you know, judges and you know, all the rest of it. It's always described, right, that, you know, God would send the judges as deliverers. They would judge the enemy. They would save the people. And then it always says after that, and then the land had rest land for had rest. this amount of time. It's always that rest that we're working towards. And we've talked and, about Christ brings them to the Sabbath rest. And even in, the, even in Romans with Paul, let alone Revelation, but even in Romans, when he talks about even the creation's groaning. Mm-hmm. So not only do we, you know, there's judgment on sin, Christ takes that, ultimately we are saved from that, but even the creation is redeemed by him, it's crying out, and it will be renewed in the mm-hmm. heavens and new earth. Because it's always that great hope, it's not just hope for now, it's hope for all eternity for us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so good stuff to keep really in mind, and then... This is good stuff. Yeah, and like I said, next week um, we'll be talking about the second covenant we have with Noah, which is, again, much more broad general and provisional uh, for us, for God to stabilize everything. Are you going to talk about how the rainbow's being usurped? <laughs> oh, yes, we'll, talk, well, you know what? It's, it really, if you, like, you know, we'll talk next week about the rainbow and what that actually signifies in Scripture, and it actually makes perfect sense uh, as to, ha- you know, why 
in God's providence, the rainbow is being used as the LGBT symbol because it's really begging for the judgment of God like the flood. <laughs> it's begging for a judgment like that. But anyway, let me, let me pray and then we'll get out of here. Father, we do thank you that you judge the wicked. We thank you, Lord, that you are a righteous God who will defeat the enemy. And God, we can't have salvation apart from judgment. We can't have uh, universalism, Lord. For you to redeem your people, you have to judge your enemies. And Lord, we thank you that you have counted us not as enemies, but you have made us allies. You made us sons and daughters. God, you've adopted us and now are protecting us under the dominion of Christ our King, who goes forth with a sword coming out of his mouth to judge his enemies, Lord. And I just thank you that you have given us that perfect provision that we pass through the judgment, Lord, that we are not destroyed by the second death. Father, thank you that you have done this great, incredible work of redemption. And I pray, Lord God, that we would leave here with all of this in mind, determined by your Spirit to live lives of more full, more faithful, and more fruitful worship in life, Lord God, that we would not just limit our worship to Sunday mornings where we reflect on what you've done, but that every single day we would reflect on the magnitude of what you've done for us personally and what you're doing all uh, in history. And God, that we would seek to live all of our lives in a posture of worship and work for your glory and your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.